all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody. This is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation and startups. Today, I am speaking to one of my mentors, um, a man that certainly would be in jail if I ever reported him to HR uh, for the amount of verbal abuse that I observed that ensued. Um, but a great man, a software pioneer uh, in... Arizona and the world, Jim Armstrong, the, who was the founder and CEO of JDA Software, which was a global supply chain point of sale management ERP system for big box retail. Jim, how are you? I'm great, David. And I just want to say that the verbal abuse that you received <laughs> from me during your time at Canal Partners was directly proportional to the egregious mistakes you used to make. <laughs> that's, what every, that's what every abuser said. I love you, but you did it. You deserved it. Yeah, well, um, in this case, it's true. Yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. Jim, tell me a little bit about your story um, All right. All right. And, and your story in software. Okay, well, um, today I'm uh, at the ripe old age of 72. Um, but if you go back to when I first came up with the concept of JDA software, I was 27. So that's 45 years ago. So that makes me kind of a, an old dinosaur in the uh, industry that I was in, which uh, during my time, we labeled it software, the software industry. I don't even know what you call it these days. Um, but there was actually no software business industry at the time. When, we, when I started JDA, it was because I had a job and I, had, I was working for a guy I really didn't like a lot. And I uh, had had a long history of working for people that I didn't enjoy working for, much like your experience at Canal, <laughs> <laughs> Canal Partners, I might add. Um, and I always learned things negatively. And, uh, you know, for example, when I was a very young man, I worked in the underground in a mine. I worked in a mine mill for three summers. These were just summer jobs as I grew up in a mining town. But I never enjoyed anyone I ever worked for. I was never motivated by anyone I ever worked for. I never saw anyone I ever worked for as an example. And I think that was just my own personal experience. I know that's not true for most people. I think in most cases it's the opposite. But what I learned was how not to do things, how not to treat employees, fellow employees, people that work for you, etc. So when I found myself in a situation again when I, where I was working for people I didn't want to be working for, I decided that I needed to do something different. And uh, I planned on leaving my job, and I went out and I got job interviews, and I got seven job interviews and six job offers because at the time there really weren't a lot of uh, trained computer programmers uh, out there, and uh, I was a hot commodity. And... That was very interesting for me because uh, the kind of competition I had was going into a company or the, the, the kind of things I was, I was going to do was going into a company and fixing somebody else's mistake. 
And, um, and you taught yourself this, right? Yeah, yeah I taught code. myself how to code. I started actually as a computer operator on a massive IBM uh, System 370, and I worked the night shift. And uh, I have really nothing to do except stack cards in a card reader uh, and then fold, take paper out of the printer. And so I got out the uh, manual, the programming manual, and I taught myself how to program. So anyways, when I, uh, I spent about three years working for, three or four years working for different companies, programming IBM systems, and I went out for these job interviews, got all these job office offers, and then decided that it's, I, I could probably make a living being a, uh, we used to call them a consultant, but we weren't really consultants. We were rent-a-programmer. You could go out, you could rent, I would rent myself out to various companies and, like I say, fix problems that other people, other people had created as I said, in those days, there was no software packages. So IBM would sell someone a computer. Um, they would take an employee, the poor guy or gal, and uh, send them off to a two-week programming course. And then they would come back and totally mess things up. And then I, I made a business out of fixing that situation. And over time, um, after a couple of years of doing that on my own, I was very successful at it. I was making probably three times as much money as I did as a salaried employee. I decided that I was so busy that I needed to hire people. First guy I hired lasted about two weeks, took a payroll advance, actually about a week, took a payroll of advance, and then I never saw him again. Uh, and then I had another young fellow that worked for me, and he actually worked out quite well. And it just kind of grew from there. Once I got it up to, uh, I don't know, seven or eight or ten employees, um, and I... I uh, was reflecting on the fact that we're just doing the same thing over and over again. We're primarily writing accounting systems for people, but we're always writing them from scratch. So I decided that um, I would create my own little software industry and created software packages that did, uh, you know, really in terms of today's applications, really primitive things like accounts payable, accounts receivable, general ledger, payroll, you know, basic accounting functions. And I did that for quite a while and grew my business to, oh, I guess about 30 people, and we had revenues of a few million dollars. And then I got asked by a, a, um, a retailer, a fairly large retailer up in Canada. I, uh, I didn't mention that, but I grew up in Canada, and all of this was happening up there. Um, and I, I went and worked for this Canadian retailer, and we learned the concept of mission-critical applications. These guys had a dire need for inventory control. They had, uh, each store had about 20,000 different items, and it was impossible to keep track of them, and fairly high turnover, so their items would sell quite quickly, and the worst thing you wanted to do was be out of a hot-selling item or to have too much of an item that didn't sell uh, a lot of, that you didn't sell a lot of. And so we um, wrote a system that helped them with this. We went on to sell it to other, uh, the, this was a dealer franchise, so we went on to sell it to other dealers and then other retailers and finally we realized that the market for this product was in the United States so in 1987 I moved my business down to Phoenix and uh, started JDA software down here. Right and then I mean you kind of hid the lead JDA software got to be how big? Uh, well today it's I think it's about six billion dollars it's now called Blue Yonder but when we sold it in 2012 we were uh I forget exactly. I think it was about eight hundred to a billion dollars in sales, and about two hundred million in EBITDA. I might add. Yeah, never raised a dollar. Never raised a dollar. We did. We did take on investors in nineteen ninety three, uh, a company called TA and Associates. But all of that was secondary money. It all came to the founders, 
And then we also raised about $50 million uh, in early 2000s to do an acquisition, to help us with an acquisition. But in terms of funding the startup and the uh, early growth of the company, it was all bootstrapped. Yeah, and you took it public. Took it public, and never once, I might add, did we, while I was involved, did we ever have, uh, uh, while I was a CEO, we never had one penny of debt. So it was kind of unique in that we were self-funded with no debt. And um, to go in public story, what was that like? Um, It was great until we were actually public. And then, you know, I keep thinking about that a lot and uh, I talk about this a lot. But if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't have gone public. Uh, It was great getting the recognition and seeing your name on the ticker, but it just changed the entire nature of my involvement with the company, which up until that point had been primarily, you know, sales, product development, really being involved in the inner workings of the company. And it went from that to dealing with analysts. And I I guess I kind of let myself do that, that. Um, but I wasn't very happy with it. I didn't enjoy um, the role that I had once we became public. And then it all became very short-term thinking as opposed to, um, you know, having a plan with your products that would span a couple of years to, you know, how can we make numbers the next quarter? And I guess once you're public, that's kind of the nature of it. Um, But I didn't enjoy that part of it. I enjoyed, when I think back on the company and the enjoyable parts of it, it was all during the period up until we became public. And so like, what was the the pivotal, I think, moment where you really felt like this thing caught fire? Was it just the market need seeing that, okay, like we just don't have any great inventory controls? Were they all doing it on paper? Like how, how was that? Inflection, well, because you scaled really quickly. Yeah, we did scale quickly, but uh, when we when we had our first Canadian company, it was a company called Canadian Tire, which uh, unless you're a Canadian, it sounds like it's a tire shop, but it's actually general merchandise, sporting goods, uh, obviously auto repair and tires and that sort of thing. But it was a very typically very large stores. Uh, the largest was up to twenty thousand square feet, or twenty thousand different items in each store, and just the scale of all of that just in the one store, because we, we at that time only wrote a store-level system. Um, it just required a tremendous amount of, of complex uh, systems. <coughs> Excuse me. And they already had complex systems, but they were on, on running on hardware that could barely cope. There was old technology and old software, and there were very people around that could maintain it, <laughs> both the hardware and the software. So when IBM came out with the uh, System 38, which became the AS400, it was the perfect platform for in-store solutions at Canadian Tire. But then when we went on to other retailers, they had multiple stores. So we addressed ourselves towards, towards retail chains, typically specialty retail chains, uh, people like auto parts stores and sporting goods stores. We had every sporting goods store in the company used our software. And we could very easily see that if you had a sophisticated system helping them with automated reordering, helping them... Uh, keep their inventory levels at the right level, which would help with their financing of the products, et cetera, that we could really make a difference. Hence the term, again, mission critical. It was important to the company. This software was important to the company, and they really couldn't compete without it, especially back in those days when a lot of retail chains were getting clobbered by the likes of Walmart, et cetera. So that was, I mean, like they had these big scale chains that everyone had to compete with. So they had to move a lot more efficiently. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, but also, also back then it was kind of unique. Like if you think about a product like an office depot or, um, you know, the other office, uh, office supply stores, there was no concept like that before the advent of computers. 
because you just couldn't handle the inventory. Specialized retail only came around uh, starting in the, really in the 80s. In fact, in 1970, there was only about five retail square foot per person in the United States. And by the mid-90s, that number was up to about 30 retail square feet per person. Mm-hmm. So the whole shopping experience had changed. Right. And so, and that was, now in your tenure as CEO or chairman, this was all before SAS. Oh, yeah, way before SAS. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, you could barely run the systems on the hardware that we had in those days for <laughs> just your own application. <laughs> so, I mean, that in itself probably had a myriad of, of problems, right? You know, version control. Oh, God, yes. We used to dream of the concept of SAS. It's not like it was just, it, it just showed up one day. I mean, we thought about that right back from the beginning of when we were developing software, as if you could have one version of the software and everybody used the same thing. We, we even had ways that uh, we could easily do that with the technology that we had. And, and even if you did custom development for customers, you could accommodate that as well. And we did a lot of custom development for customers as we were, as we were building the product, some of which went back into it uh, and, and some didn't. But uh, if we could have done it with SaaS and, and got into uh, monthly recurring revenue, it would have been an incredible thing. We were, ours was 100% license revenue in the days. And so you, you built this. I mean, I think you were in, what, half of big box retail? If you had uh, a chain stores of $100 million and above, we probably did half the retailers on the planet. Wow. Yeah. Now, I can't speak for China. I don't know what went on in there, but uh, at least in the Western world. Um, do you think they're still using your code? <laughs> I know that there are plenty of companies <laughs> still using code that I myself have written. <laughs> because it, that's, a, that's mission critical yeah. <laughs> when they're still using your code. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so... Decades of work, tons and tons of, of hours, sweat, blood, and tears put into this, relationships built, probably relationships lost. What was it all for, Jim? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, uh, you know, I always not wanted to work for somebody else. And it was my, never about the money, right? It, it Really, initially, it wasn't about the money, but really, initially, it was because I grew up in an, in a, an environment where... Uh, stability was really non-existent. I grew up in a mining town, and mining towns tend to go boom and bust, and your parents could get jobs very early, or uh, your parents could get jobs very easily at certain times, but then they could get laid off, and you could lose your house, or you could lose your car, et cetera. And I I remember distinctly, we were very Catholic (laughs) in those days, and I remember very distinctly my, my parents getting us all to kneel down and pray that my father wouldn't lose his job. So I always had a, and, and I would, you know, as a, as a kid, I would say, well, why? Well, because then we'll lose our house. Well, why? Because we have a mortgage. We have to pay it every month. Uh-uh. So it, it dawned on me that having debt was something I never wanted to have. So my goal in starting my own business was to not necessarily to be rich, but to be independent of debt. That was my, I, I wanted to pay off my mortgage right away. I never wanted to have a car loan, et cetera. And that, that's what really what drove me to do it. Plus, I liked working for myself. I always said I'd, uh, you know, when we were a small company, we always said we'd never have more than 15 people, and we ended up eventually with thousands. <laughs> and so you've accumulated the amount of capital that, like, not even 1% of the 1% probably have accumulated in their lifetime. Um, what does that mean for you today? 
right? Kind of looking back at all of that. Yeah. Well, when, when you are successful in business and then you, I think the culmination of it is going public. I mean, there are good things that come with going public. And one of those things was for me, massive amounts of liquidity. So I had more money than I ever thought I would ever need. And you, you know, I did what I, I guess most people would do. I gave it away to my family. I set up you know, uh, trust funds for my kids and did all of that. But I was never the kind of guy that wanted to have huge mansions or, or jets. Uh, I did actually have an airplane, but it was prop driven and I flew it myself. Um, I never wanted to have a big yacht in the ocean. Uh, so in the beginning, I struggled with what should I do with this newfound wealth. And then I discovered that um, just basically looking at people and, and talking to people about what they did with the money, the ones that I found that were the happiest with what they did, were those that got involved in some sort of charitable endeavor. And so we, we, we kind of fell into that. Uh, we tended to lean more towards the educational side of it. We created a scholarship program down at ASU way back in 1998. We've been doing it now for 25 years. We have today, we, we started with one student. Next year we had two, et cetera. And now we have 35 students that uh, we support. Uh, these are students that come from, um, well, basically they have to be financially independent. So that takes on many flavors. They might be first generation Arizonans, or they might be, um, they come from dysfunctional families or what, you know, there's a number of reasons why they end up not having any kind of financial support from their family. So we step in and help with that and create a kind of a, uh, a group. Uh, we have a, a group of students that we do multiple events with, we get very involved with. Uh, I think it's been a great example for both my, my kids who have both gone on or uh, all have gone on to do uh, significant charitable endeavors. And now my, gr- my grandchildren who are, who are involved with it, my, uh, we take trips down to Mexico to work with another significant charity that I work with, Rancho Feliz. And my granddaughter and my grandson have been down there probably 18 to 20 times themselves. That's pretty great. Talk about Rancho Feliz. Pump it. <clears throat> Pump Rancho Feliz. Yeah. Well, I just spent four days down there. We went down on Friday. We had our, our ASU group down. They came down Friday night. Saturday, we built uh, we built homes for people that don't have places to live. And then Sunday morning, we did a major food distribution that fed, I forget how many people, but we did about 700 bags of food that would last a family of five for about a week. <clears throat> and then we, we stayed on for a couple of days too. We had a board meeting and did some other things. Uh, but Rancho Feliz is a town or is a, uh, uh, a charity run by a very good friend of mine, Gil Gillenwater. Uh, and he, he started this way back in 1987 and a specific to a certain town down there, a town across the border from Douglas, Arizona called Agua Prieta. And we were very well known down there. We do, housing projects we you know we do these food distributions we do literally hundreds of scholarships we send kids to and what they call an american school where they're immersed in english english language learning as their primary language in school so they graduate with uh, complete fluency in both languages some of them we've been doing it a long time now so some of them have gone on to major universities in mexico we don't send anyone to school outside of mexico that's important policy that we have uh, and we've got, we've graduated doctors and lawyers and, you know, um, uh, engineers and business people and all social workers. Uh, we just got a guy that just got his degree in criminology, uh, and there's no shortage of use for that down there. Uh, 
But it's, you know, it's, it's a generational thing now where we've helped, helped out down there for so long that uh, we're just an integral part of that town. Yeah, so you're a big part of, you know, youth here in Arizona. You're a big part of the ecosystem down in Douglas or Agua I should say. What is, um, what are you excited about the next couple of years? Well, I, I <laughs> not doing all this stuff, just kind of <laughs> relaxing a little bit because, you know, I've, I've uh, since I retired, I retired as CEO, but way back in 2003, but stayed on as chairman of JDA until 2012, uh, started a uh, venture capital firm, as you know, because you worked there for, for a number of years, Canal Partners, um, and then kind of wound that down uh, a few years ago. And now I work with my son, Patrick, and our family office. We've been doing that at the same time since 2008, uh, investing in um, all sorts of different things. I still enjoy doing that. Uh, we don't do direct investing that much anymore, so we're not, we're not required to be directly involved with the companies that we invest in, but we do it all as limited partners through private equity firms and real estate uh, funds and credit funds and that sort of thing. What do you look for in a good GP? Um, track record. Yeah. I mean, really, that really trumps uh, everything, doesn't yeah, it? It really does. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, it's all about the, what they're, what markets are addressing too. We still like, like technology. We, we like our favorite investors are Toma Bravo, TA and Associates, Battery Ventures, that sort of thing. Great brands. DWP Capital. Yeah, because we've been, I was involved with them over the years. Yeah, DWP Capital for sure. <laughs> you know those high, those high ticket brand names. Yeah, right? you just kind of <laughs> slipped that one by me. But yeah, we had, we had investments by TA and Associates and Toma Bravo. And I, mm -hmm. I, at Canal Partners, I worked with uh, firms like Battery Ventures. So they all typically will allow uh, the folks that they've worked with to invest in their funds, uh, you know, uh, and that, that's been very, very, uh, very favorable for us. I read your, your blog this morning about how a lot of um, uh, distributions are really drying up this year. And that's very, very true. This is the first time I've seen this since we've started our family office. Uh, because it happened again back in 2008, but we were just at the beginnings of it. So sure. we didn't experience that ourselves that much. But, uh, but this past, I would say the past year, it's been really uh, remarkable how distributions from private equity firms have dried and real estate firms have dried up. Um, but you know, everything regresses to the mean eventually. So yeah, you've been through it. this a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People complain about interest rates and I can tell you that my first, my first house, I had a second mortgage at 19%. So, you know, <laughs> when I saw people getting mortgages for three and 4%, I'm like, you just don't have any idea how lucky you are. <laughs> um, Looking forward at innovation at the United States, you know, at the future, are you excited? Are you nervous? No, I'm, I'm excited about it. I, I, you know, obviously have reservations about AI and the trickery you can pull with it on social media and that sort of chicanery. But, you know, it, it never changes. Like, it just never changes. I, I can remember thinking back when we had early computers, like, man, would it be cool to have a a 10 megabyte hard disk drive. Wouldn't that be cool? You wouldn't have to store all your stuff on computer, I know you call them computer cards. And then things just change. You know, and I did a little talk down at the Phoenix Robotics Club uh, about two years ago, and I brought in boxes of 80 column cards. I know you've seen them because I've personally showed them to you. <laughs> but that was the storage medium back in the day. And I did an example where I said, look, here's a box of a thousand cards. 
and you could line them up and make a road that goes from here to St. Louis, Missouri, and back. Most kids in Arizona public schools probably don't know where St. Louis, Missouri is, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it's thousands of miles away and all the way back. And you'd have to go that far and all the way back using 80 column cards to get the amount of storage you had on your telephone. Unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. So where does it go from here? It just keeps changing and changing and changing and and changing by orders of magnitude. So I have a lot of faith in technology. I hope we can use it properly. I hope we don't use it to bifurcate uh, our societies between the rich and the poor, um, but that we use it for all of the right things. Yeah. Looking back at your sage wisdom right now, what would you tell an earlier version of yourself? An earlier version of myself, I would say, don't be so, don't lack self-confidence when I started out. Because when I started out, I really was worried about just paying the bills. And I, I never, I never looked that far into the future. And it wasn't until I'd been in business for a few years that I started to ponder what we could become. And once I did that, then the business really took off. So I think keeping your, your eyes on that is key. The second thing is debt. It, this is just my opinion, but I know there's, there's appropriate places for debt. But most of the companies, we were very acquisitive at JDA. We bought about 15 companies during the time that I was uh, the CEO. And all of them, the, the, the sale to JDA was a, always, always, always a direct result of having too much debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, you probably got a good price on those. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we had to pay off the debt. But <laughs> yeah. um, from an investor perspective, what do you know now that you didn't know when you first started investing after you accumulated? Because you've done a lot of deals. Yeah, I've done a lot of deals. One of the things I learned is just you, you stay in your track. Like, don't try to get outside of your track. My track was always technology and mission critical software and if you look at most of the companies that we invested in that's you know that's where they were like webpt was a good example mm-hmm. they're mission critical to uh, to uh, a uh, physical therapist and if you just stay in that track uh, don't invest in apps mm-hmm. don't invest in people that have a product but not a company you know right. that sort of thing i always look for revenues cuz i never figured i was smart enough to know whether or not a, co- a product could sell i'm just not and, uh, but I'm also smart enough to, to know that if somebody else is buying it in quantity, then the product has got to be saleable. And mm-hmm. that's, that's always my first test. So sure. I, I never invest in startups because I'm not smart enough. Right. Except for the one we just did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Rules are meant to be broken. But I only did that because I, have, I, I harbor such guilt over all the verbal abuse I gave you. So. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Capital Stack. Um, If you like what you heard, please subscribe, tell a friend, and we drop an episode every Tuesday. If you're in Arizona and the idea of giving back, having an immersive experience in an area that is super close to home and you can, you know, completely get a, a fresh perspective on the abundance that we live here in America, please visit ranchofeliz.org. You know, I've been a, um, uh, a user of that experience for the last couple of years. It helps me tame my neurotic narcissism. Um, and I think it can help a lot of people in Arizona. So please visit ranchofeliz.org. Um, anyway, thank you so much. And we will have another episode next Tuesday. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. 
Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.